I'll do my best to to make it interesting to compensate for Shandine who <laughs> you who know, has so so little personality and so few opinions. So just thank you. I'm glad to hear someone else name it. You know what I mean? That felt good. That felt real good. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Delma Jackson. And I'm Shandine Garcia. And we're super, super excited about our guest today. A dear friend of mine, Vernice Miller-Travis, is taking time out of all of her busy week, busy schedule, busy life to spend time with us today. And you won't want to miss it. I can't wait. But before we introduce Bernice, guess I'll talk to you. So here we are. Um, talk to me. How are you? How you doing? What's going on with you? The usual questions I have when we open up a show. Don't make me ask them again. Just talk to me. The only mm. reason I'm not mm-hmm. eviscerating you right now is mm. because you're recovering from COVID. This is the only mm. time you're going to get a pass. I'm doing mm. great. My boys are home from college. One just flew in from Ireland and the other flew in from Atlanta. And it's it's as though my house has a heartbeat again. And I know mm. that I'm trying to adjust to life without them. But there's something that just colors change in my home when they arrive. And I don't know how to explain it. And it's not like we do anything deep. It's not like we sit and have deep mom-son conversations. Mm-hmm. We play rock band <laughs> we play mm-hmm. cards we eat and cook and watch tv watch netflix or whatever it's not that um deep but the colors change um sure and we just found out yesterday that emory is going to where isaiah goes is going to move to all online because of the new variant of COVID, so they're not, he's not going back to school until January thirty first. Okay, yeah. So that's what's happening in my world. What's good in yours? Um. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, uh, not that you asked uh, if I wanted everybody to know that I had COVID. You just except that you had it there. written in the notes, COVID Christmas. This is what I'm going to talk about. But go ahead. Well, when I edit that part out, nobody's going to hear you say that. It was in the notes. Nobody so, likes you. You have no friends. I had COVID. Uh, COVID was my friend. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> COVID got close. Um, yeah, I uh, found out, what was it, um, the Friday before Christmas, um, I was diagnosed um, I felt really bad that Friday. Thursday, Friday was the worst. I would say by Sunday, my fever had broke. I still couldn't taste or smell anything. But otherwise, I was more or less on my way back to normal. And just a handful of days later, taste and smell came back. So just in time for Christmas dinner, I was able to actually taste my food. My mother and sister were kind enough to cook and bring food over and just drop it on my porch. Um, And I offered to do an exchange, but they didn't want none of my COVID cooking. Um, That hurt. But it also saved me from having to get in the kitchen. Uh, So, Do they like your non-COVID cooking? Oh, I could cook. Yeah, I enjoy being in the kitchen. Is that Um, right? Yeah. 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 And I take a lot of pride in that. I was very fortunate that COVID did not um, treat me the way it treats others. I was fortunate to have been vaccinated, obviously. Um, That helped a lot. And so my recovery was fairly quick. I did not get super sick. I've had flus, just normal-ass flus that were worse than than that. Um, Yeah, so... All good in that regard. I did have my babies with me, my two youngest. Uh, we all had to quarantine together, but they never showed symptoms. They never. I just got them tested, and we're still waiting to hear back. 
but I'm pretty confident they're good. Um, they never had any symptoms or anything like that. They've been good, and I've been keeping away from them. So, yeah. The last thing I want to talk about, uh, you and I, Shanting, we did our first uh, co-facilitation together, just the two of us. A few weeks back, we were in uh, Santa Fe doing our thing. And um, this is one of the few times that I will go on record and say anything kind about you. But I genuinely enjoy working with you. It was good to facilitate with you. And you are good at what you do. All of those things surprised the shit out of me in that order. You know what I mean? Like, one was more surprising than the next, than the next, than the next. Um, and the fact that I, like, came away with a like, genuine admiration for your skill as a facilitator was by far the most mind-blowing component of the whole fucking thing. <clears throat> What's wrong with you? I have no words for what you've just said. You mad, bro? You've, <laughs> you've seen me facilitate. We ran well together with Sarika. Like, I wasn't seen- very impressed. Oh, no. You know what it was, is every time it was my part, you were out smoking a cigarette, is what it really was. Let's be clear. Uh huh. Okay. I see you not yeah, denying. No, I see you not fair. denying. That's fair. Um, I actually. Fact, I'm about to go have a cigarette now. While yo, I'm aware. Talking. I'm aware what you're about to do. Uh, I will say two things. One, Talk to me. Um, I know this. And we we talked about this a little bit before we recorded. I know this isn't you having COVID isn't about me, but you having COVID right after another dear friend of mine had COVID. I don't know that I slept for a full night for the entire time until I was convinced um, that you were out of the woods. And so that was I know it's I know you didn't have it as bad as other people. I know you didn't. But COVID comes with all of the scares of of death and grief and, and, and all of the things. And so, mm-hmm. um, I really, I don't like to talk a ton about my spirituality in a lot of places, but I'm a big, I pray a lot. And mm-hmm. it was, again, wasn't about me, but God damn it. Until I got the, until I saw your face on FaceTime, like, no, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm doing okay. I was like, okay. My sister was like, can you like stop? And can you, like, you're driving me crazy with you're crazy. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So I am grateful for that. The second thing I wanted to say about us facilitating together is interestingly, both locations where you and I had both, and this was our sole facilitation, just so our, our guests know, we had a, a badass crew of people that created a racial equity leadership lab, and there was a crew of five of us with um, a beautiful leader, Sarika, who helped pull that all together with the work that we were doing, and that's where Delma and I originally met. Mm-hmm. That location of where we did that carries the same level of interrogation or problems or I don't have the right mm-hmm. word for it, but it has, it has the same feeling, which I think was just coincidence or really the world that we live in. And so let me explain. We were at a museum and help me out, Delma, cause I'm going to get the name wrong of a Buffalo soldier museum in mm-hmm. Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if our listeners understand who the Buffalo soldiers were and, mm-hmm. and their history and their trajectory. They did Amazing things, and it's very complex in what they did. And they also killed, like they were charged was to kill my people. Mm-hmm. And now there are a lot of also Buffalo soldiers who refused to mm-hmm. kill my people. So it's all complex. But essentially, we did a professional development on racial justice in a location that was really fucking hard for me to be in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't talk about it to anybody except uh, Sarika. Mm-hmm. And it was... And and I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten, but had it had gone to some other recesses of my memory. And now, sure. fast forward to this past month, where Delmo is just you and I, not with our huge, amazing crew, just you and I facilitating in Santa Fe at a hotel owned by a local tribal nation. That in my mind was full of content that embodied cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. 
it it was commodifying on people's love affair with Native Americans and Southwest Native Americans from the art deco to the names of the rooms to the, all of the and and I struggled in the Buffalo Soldier Museum and I struggled in the Santa Fe Museum and it came at the same time Delma and I are in a neck deep debate around cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sort of invite you, um, Delma, to to unpack a little bit of that conversation that you and I are in and let our listeners know that we really want to dig into that in some future episodes. Yeah. Um, Shanin and I have spent every... I think the conversation started in Santa Fe, but we were going back and forth around the concept of cultural appropriation and and spe- more specifically who is capable of cultural appropriation and who is not. Um, I am of the opinion that people, so-called people of color, BIPOC folks, I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of borrowing, taking, replicating. There's a lot of things we can do with one another's culture, but in my mind, it does not rise to the level of appropriation. Um, in my mind, the only folks who have the access to the resources necessary to truly appropriate culture is white folks. Um, the rest of us are just doing some other shit. And I'm not suggesting that it's okay if I you know take on someone else's cultural artifacts or products and without acknowledgement without all the things that make appropriation appropriation right like there's in my mind it's like it's the difference between racial discrimination versus racism right That's, that's kind of the distinction I guess I make and um uh, it's my understanding that Shandine feels a little differently about that, but I'm not going to speak for you. What, what foolishness are you about to offer? <laughs> well, so it actually didn't start in Santa Fe. And this is, you no. know, a, a reminder to our listeners that Delma remembers very little and that, you know, his That's brain fair. is like a sieve and his memory is like a sieve. I have COVID. So. <laughs> That's. That's what I scream for everything. Oh my god, this is going to be a long year. From now because on. all all you're going to do is look up verification, something that validates that your memory is impacted by COVID for every single thing from here on I out. Had COVID. Come on. <clears throat> yeah, no. I'm I'm aware. We had talked about it earlier, um probably around like the when we were it was the pre-conversation when we were talking to Stevie and Teresa, because I went and asked my girl Robin what she thought about it, and you were, and I was going to ask mm-hmm. my girl Lilani what she thought about it, and you were like, "You're just lining up people to be against me," and I said, "No, I'm just lining up smart women to talk about cultural appropriation with you to, you know, school you a your bit, place. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. a little bit." Mm-hmm. I feel one. I, I'm evolving and. Honestly, which I hate to admit, I'm evolving a little bit toward a concept of what you talked to me about in Santa Fe. But where I was coming from previously was, I think it is cultural appropriation when any person, BIPOC or not, takes on vestiges or aspects or things of an identity that's not theirs. And it's damaging Mm -hmm. And that needs mm-hmm. they need to be held accountable. It's mm-hmm. just as racist for you to sit there. Like I'll I'll just use you as an example because you're right in front of. For if you were to be like, oh, I'm really into Native American things, Shandine. I want to put a whole Native American theme in my house, and I want to you like all the things. Mm-hmm. That's cultural appropriation, and that's racist, and you should be held accountable. Mm. And there are pieces that we were talking about in Santa Fe that aren't about letting someone off the hook, but are more about if we weren't in this racially stratified, fucked up universe, what can um, 
not like decorating your house and shit, but what can it what can cultural admiration or being informed by or learning about or influenced by in some way be in a way that isn't damaging to humans. Mm-hmm. We just didn't fully mm-hmm. land it, but I do I do think that a lot of people, and I want to say white people in particular, are scared to hold people of color accountable for things in ways that I think is just as fucking racist. And I don't want to be that parallel thing that I'm not going to hold, that I'm not going to say, no, Delma, you can't do that shit to me either. It's just like, is it worse if a white person does it? Is it worse if a person of color does it? Sometimes I feel the sting worse when another person of color culturally appropriates indigenous shit, Mexican shit, like all the things that I am and embody, it almost hurts worse. Well, that's because you're sensitive as hell. I am. I am. And you're not going to make us responsible for that. (laughs) Shut your face. That's not the only reason. (laughs) Get your shit together. You ain't got to feel that way You're so fucking racist. Just get Um, over it. Right? Right? Just get over it. Just get over it. Quit being so sensitive. Quit being so sensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you read the playbook. conversation worth continuing and i'm looking forward to inviting um other folks into it so that that can help you understand the area of your ways i think um the accountability piece i don't think we give folks a pass but i also understand that there's a level of subjectivity help me understand why it's not racist it's my understanding that white supremacy is a key component in systemic racism. So without the element of whiteness being present, to appropriate, in my mind, to appropriate a thing is to have the control over the levers of storytelling in a culture to the extent that you can actually rewrite the history. Mm, we got to come back example, and talk about this. I hear what you're saying. This, there's yeah. like 10,000 things to unpack. Just because just because a white person isn't present doesn't mean that whiteness isn't present. And that's fair. Can a person of color embody white cultural norms? Absolutely. Happens all the time. Can they leverage the powers of systems? That's a very different question. That's a very different question. And so in my mind... So I'm not unfamiliar with the nuance of embodying whiteness in black and brown bodies. Um, You'll never have me argue with you on that point. But that's very different than controlling the levers of power, controlling the levers of media, storytelling, economic forces, all the things that make a system a system. So in your opinion, cultural appropriation isn't cultural appropriation without that power dynamic. You cannot appropriate without control over the levers of storytelling. Because so then what would it be called? To, in your opinion, what would it be called then? That And part of what I was saying in Santa Fe is I don't have the word yet. I don't mm. know what I want to call it. Because I don't want to give folks a pass, so I want to acknowledge what you're saying. I just want a different phrase for it. So that there's a distinction made. Right? I can't make people forget... Like, black people don't have the levers of power to make the rest of the world forget that some part of your culture belongs to your culture, right? I was born in a world where rock and roll was white people's music because white people controlled the levers of storytelling to the point where they erased all of the black folks who actually made rock and roll. I don't know any other people on this planet that can control storytelling to the point where they can make you fucking forget the origin story. Only white people, as far as I know, can do that. And that, to me, is the definition of appropriation. 
without that element, you're not appropriating anything. You're doing something else. I hear that. And I still don't know that I agree. I hear that. Let's, let's, let's push on it. I also feel like, There's a premise that is wanting to be granted that I don't want to grant. Talk to me. Around who has power and who doesn't have power. I get it. I know that they, like, yes, who controls the story, who controls the, but I almost feel like it's cemented if we, if we yield that in the context of cultural appropriation. And I don't know that I want to. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I could do the passion and the vision. Let's... Let's run at this hard. I want to run at cultural appropriation. I also am not convinced that we need a different word for cultural appropriation. I think we need a different word for what you're talking about. Agreed. Yeah, I'm cool either way. I just want a distinction. I don't give a shit how it get laid out. I just want a distinction. That's all I want. You want a lot. When don't I want a lot? Just like a man. Have you met me? Sadly. You're welcome. You're welcome. And all Change the deleterious your life. Your life all the deleterious the effects as a result of that. Oh, you just wanted to use that word again. It's because you made fun of me earlier. I didn't make fun of you. I asked you to define it for me because I didn't know the word. How no, you said, you? is that a word? Is that even a word? I don't that's think that's a word is what you said. Then you made me look that. it up. Then you made me read the definition. Then you counted the syllables in it. And then you gave me a hard time. You know what? I am so Let's thankful that guests. I actually have that part of our conversation <laughs> recorded. I'm going to let them hear what you just said, how you lied on me. And then I'm going to cut in and play what I actually said for the people. Did you say deleterious? It, is that wrong? Is that, did I say that wrong? Is that the wrong word? I don't word? even know that fucking word. I, I'm going to look it up real fast. Does it mean like connected to? No, I think it means like, well, let me see. I could have used it completely wrong. Harmful effect, injurious, hurtful, noxious, destructive. I used it right. Use the word again. Um, the, a deleterious like impact. Deleterious. Of, I don't know the word. That's why I'm like. I'm going to pronounce. Let me see if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I could be. Deleterious. Deleterious. I learned a word today. It's that having a harmful effect, injurious, hurtful, noxious, destructive, pernicious, harmful, often in subtle or unexpected way. That's a five-syllable word. Well done. Thank you very much. So that they know you so full of shit. I don't think that's true. It's coming out your ears. we're We're about to introduce our guests, so... Why don't Thank you God. transition us beautifully? Sick of your shit. <laughs> I. I wonder am if you could get COVID again. Can I? Can I, I would, introduce my guest? Maybe the variant. What Please. can we do to get you sick again? Continue. Continue. When we come back, we will be introducing our guest, Vernice Miller Travis. Um, please stick around. We can't wait to talk to her and we can't wait for you to hear from her. So excited to have her join us. We'll be right back. Thank you for giving Diving Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple things you could do to show your support. First, Head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back, everybody. We're so glad you stayed with us, and you're going to be glad, too. I have a, we have a dear friend on today whose name is Vernice Miller-Travis, an executive vice president at the Metropolitan Group. And I'm going to read a little bit of her bio, but before I do, I want to share just a tiny, tiny story of the first time I met Vernice. She and I were asked to lead some racial caucus groups for a large environmental organization that was 
leaning into providing levels of support and listening to their BIPOC employees. And we were on a team of three, but the person who was joining us didn't show up right away. And she and I had never met each other before. And it's interesting when you think about the things that you bond with when you get on a call with a human being. And in that moment, we actually bonded over the passing of her husband and my father. And it's very rare that you will find someone who actually isn't listening to listen for, let me one-up you, or let me tell you my story, or let me tell you, but was actually heart-to-heart listening, deep listening, what, what my dear friend and I consider being just seen like justly justice, like your, your, your fullest humanity is seen. And that's what it was like. Our first exchange is we leaned into one another heart to heart in a way that um, I rarely find with another human being, especially when you meet them just straight cold, and you're about to run into a facilitation on stuff that you haven't even done together at all. And for me, it was knowing that I'd actually met um, someone who is beyond a friend but someone who could become family in a way that was very rare for me. And so that's the first time I met Vernice. And then I found out later that she worked at the Metropolitan Group, where later I then was joined to um, do work alongside her. I'm going to read you a little bit of her bio, folks, so you know a little bit more about her. But I wanted you to know a little bit about her heart before we started. Vernice has a vast experience as a civil rights and environmental policy analyst and advocate. She's been a consultant for federal and state agencies, foundations, nonprofits. She's been an environmental program manager and foundation program officer. She was a major contributing author to the landmark report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, which inspired her to go on to help and build an actual huge movement, a social movement rooted at the intersection of race, environment, economics, social social justice, and public health. She's been on a gazillion boards, some of which are the U.S. EPA National Environmental Justice Advisory Council and the Environmental Finance Advisory Board, Clean Water Action, Land Loss Prevention Project, Natural Resources Defense Council Actions Fund, and more. She grew up in a binational family based both in the Bahamas and the historic Harlem community of New York City. Welcome, Bernice. We're so happy you're here with us today. Thank you, Shantine. Thank you, Delma. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Thank you for taking some time. You you have to be one of the busiest people I've ever heard of. So (laughs) I really really appreciate you being here with us. Um, I wanted to jump right in. I'm curious about how you got to be in the place you're in. What are some of the primary influences that that led you to do the work you do and show up the way you do? Wow, that's a, I'm going to try to make a, what is a very powerful question. I'm going to try to truncate this answer because there's just been a lot of things that have influenced me, but probably the, the, the first thing to say, and it, you know, helps people to understand who I am is that it is true that I grew up in the Harlem community. I grew up in the Harlem community in the 1960s um, and then in the South Bronx in the 1970s. And those were two formidable spaces of social and racial upheaval um, at the time that I was growing up and, and, and coming of age. And so everything was happening um, at the same time, right? Everything was happening literally Um, in my communities, right? And they were the center of a lot of social activism, a lot of pushback, a lot of throwdown. Um, You know, let's just be clear, people were really, um, were really in a moment of, of the fullest expression of black power, and women's liberation, and the black arts movement, all of that was happening right where I lived. Um, So I, I think, you had to be a pretty cold fish to not have been affected by what was going on around you. And 
every night. So my father was a news junkie and he watched the news every night, the six o'clock news every night. And every night at six o'clock, two things would come on television when I was growing up. Whatever was the latest atrocity happening in the civil rights movement in the Deep South, and whatever was the latest atrocity that had happened in Vietnam in the Vietnam War. And they were on the, the local news and the national news every single night. Well, of course, I also lived in New York City, which is a major media um, hub, right? Global media hub. And so I just saw that unfolding on television every night. And I sat right next to my dad. So I was a daddy's girl and my dad would sit in, you know, this position on the couch and I would sit right next to him. I mean, like he couldn't, he, I had to move in order for him to get up. That's how close I would be sitting next to him. Um, and you know, everything that he saw, I saw, and you know, I would ask him a million questions and my dad was the kind of person that you could ask him a million questions and he would have a million answers for you. Now, when I was grown, I realized that he made up a lot of that shit. Um, but I didn't know that at the time, right? <laughs> so, but I, you know, I was I was raised in a space where there was nothing that was off bounds. And in fact, when I was really little, you know, when I was a baby and a toddler, my dad told everyone who would come into contact with me, "Do not do that." That you know, baby talk stuff with her. She is not a little chimp is what he would say. She's a little person. So talk to her like you would talk to another person. Right. And sure enough, as I got older, my aunt likes to say that I spoke in paragraphs as a little kid. Right. Um, because I was, I was used to communicating with adults. And so, you know, that, that just put me in a particular headspace. My dad was a, um, was an active member of a union, um, District Council 37, which was a leader in the AFSCME movement, um, in the civil rights movement. And it just was, it was everywhere. We had this amazing principal named Adele W. Timpson, and she was the first black woman principal in the New York City public school system. She was acting, of course, because, you know, they couldn't just let her have the full reign of the title. Right. But so she went around and she combed through the public school system and she called the best teachers and got them to come and teach at our elementary school, Matthew Henson Elementary School, Public School 100. And one of the people that she called was. Um, Faith Rangold, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artist known for a lot of work, a book that she did called Tar Baby about how people in Harlem, when it got really hot, would go up on their tar roofs and, and picnic overnight because um, it would be so hot in the tenements that they lived in. And she did the Color Purple Quilt series. She's just a phenomenal um, artist, but she was also a leader in the black arts movement. She was one of those artists that challenged the Metropolitan Museum of Art for not displaying the art of any black artist or artist of color. She did that while she was my teacher, my art teacher from kindergarten to fifth grade. She was my teacher. And so even in, in my exposure to art, it was through a revolutionary lens, right? So, and then the Black Panthers were throwing down and the Nation of Islam were throwing down. And when I say Right in the neighborhood, I mean right in the neighborhood on Lenox Avenue where I grew up, where I was literally born at Harlem Hospital and, and grew up. And so, like I said, you would have to have been a pretty cold fish not to have been affected in some way, shape, or form by all the things that were growing up. And just for me, I always felt like I was a couple generations behind, that I wanted I wanted to be a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I wanted so badly to be a member of SNCC, but I was in elementary school at the time, right? I wanted so badly to be a member of the Black Panther Party, but I was in elementary school and junior high school at the time. Thank God for my mother, because I was surely, I was going one of those two places is where I would have been. And so, you know, that just framed who and what I wanted to do over the course of my life. Harlem was particularly interesting because adjacent to East Harlem or El Barrio, uh, one of the one of the um, the 
proving grounds for the young lords, both the South Bronx and East Harlem, El Barrio, is right ne- is one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States, and it is adjacent to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is the most affluent zip code in the United States of America. Um, and it's and so, but those when I say they're next to each other, there's a street called 96th Street, East 96th Street. And on the north side of East 96th Street is El Barrio. On the south side of East 96th Street is the Upper East Side, the Silk Stocking District. Um, And there they are, right next to each other. And New York City is full of communities like that. And so, you know, that struck me as a child and through middle school and through high school, this sort of juxtaposition of poverty. And um, so that, you know, that that is the the milieu in which I grew up and it shaped it shaped everything about what I wanted to do with my life. Both of my parents worked at Harlem Hospital, where I was born, um, which was the biggest employer employer in Harlem. Um, and my mother was a nurse. My dad um, uh, worked in the part of the hospital where you go to sign up for appointments to see doctors and clinics and all of that. My mother worked there for 43 years. My dad worked there for 36 years. So... Um, Organized labor is a very big part of my life and my consciousness, Um, you know, all of that. And when you look back on it, I, you know, I think about we were very working class. You know, we were definitely a paycheck to paycheck family, but there was so much going on. It was such a rich time to grow up. And that has everything that I, everything that I am is about growing up in Harlem. Every single thing that I've done in my life over these Um, these six decades is about growing up in Harlem. So for our listeners, you talk about the love and support of organizing labor movements, about wanting to be a Black Panther, about wanting to be a member of SNCC, about wanting to like, and and the amazing work ethic and amazingness relationship with your parents. Connect the dots for us to environmental justice work that you do. So my dad was from the Bahamas, and most of my family, the Millers, still live in the Bahamas. And every summer, um, my dad and I would go from the Saturday after school ended until the Saturday before school started, we would go to Nassau and spend the entire summer with our family. You know, every person who is an immigrant from someplace else remembers those things about the home country that set it apart from the United States. Everything about the Bahamas is better than the United States, I just have to say, Um, from an aesthetic standpoint, right? Um, It is now becoming developed, but at the time when I went there, there was a great balance between nature and human development. Today, in 2021, the Atlantic Ocean that, that surrounds and intertwines in the Bahamian Islands is as clear, as crystal clear as you can imagine. So you could be in the, in the sky descending in a plane thousands of feet up in the air, and you look out the window, and you can see straight down to the bottom of the ocean, right? So that's what I grew up with as part of my, you know, as part of my life is coconut trees and um, the fish. We would go to the fish market every other day. My Aunt Sybil would take the, you know, would take the little ones, Oh, there were eight of us, including me. The little ones were eight of us. Um, and we would go down to the dock with her and she would buy fish straight out the ocean that the, the fishermen had just caught, right? Or we had coconut trees. We had lime trees. We had um, just all kinds of stuff which just there. And I learned and I got to grow up with what nature is supposed to look like and what a, a safe and nurturing environment, ecological environment is supposed to look like. And then I would come back to New York and I would like, what the hell happened here? Right. Same ocean. Um, but a, an ocean that, you know, is, is almost pitch black. You can't see anything in the ocean water off the coast of, of New York. It's the same ocean. Right. I just knew something was terribly wrong. I didn't have a word for it. I didn't have a language for it. But I just knew in my soul that something was terribly wrong between what I experienced when we were in the Bahamas and then when I what I experienced when we got back to New York and back to the United States. And and I think that is the core of what made me become an environmentalist, even though 
I never studied environment until I went to graduate school. Well, you couldn't because um, there was no there, there was no curriculum. Now you can get from the University of Michigan, thank you very much, in Ann Arbor, you can get a PhD, a master's, and a BA in environmental justice. Thank you very much. You couldn't do that when I went to college. The closest thing you could study was astronomy, right? And what the hell is that? I mean, I love astronomy. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, it, it, it doesn't help you understand the ocean, right? It doesn't help you understand ecosystems. So, um it was it was that juxtaposition between what I experienced when we went home to visit our family and what I came back to in New York. The, the juxtaposition was so harsh. You know, the concrete, the asphalt, the lack of trees, the lack of flora and fauna, um, the lack of access to clean water. This was not something that I thought I would ever do. I had not studied it. But it came crashing down in our own reality, in our community. And that is what put me on that trajectory, Shandine. But it is, it is not what I started to do. It is just what bubbled up in my soul. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I have a follow-up. Environmental work for me came late. It was never something I was particularly interested in. And I think in part because... I didn't grow up having a ton of access to the sort of pristine environments that you came to see, um, particularly during your summer months, you know, um, every year. So I didn't have a basis of comparison. And I grew up in an in a urban environment that was literally falling apart through deindustrialization. De- um, and for some, that might have inspired them to think about environmental impacts. But for me, it was just the farthest thing from my mind. So my question, you got to see Nassau. You got to see that every summer growing up. How do you translate that passion hmm. to a Harlemite who ain't never seen Nassau? How do you take what was so obvious and visceral for you? Yeah. And, and motivate people and move people if they don't get to see what you've seen. So another, another piece of my growing up was that um, my dad um, fought in, 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 uh, served in the U.S. Army and fought in World War II in, in, the, in the Japanese theater in, mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the Pacific. And... I think he's the only black man I know that came back from the heavily segregated army during World War II. There was something about it that he liked. And what mm-hmm. he liked were these things called bivouacs, right? Force marches, essentially, with a 40, 50-pound pack on your back. And he just liked to walk and walk and walk. And so he walked me all over New York City, just a freaking long way. And But I never complained because I was with my dad. And as long as I was with my dad, it was all cool. But he was trying to show me where we lived, right? And trying to get me to situate myself where I was in this city. And, the, and, and that thing about the juxtaposition between the Upper East Side and El Barrio or East Harlem was so evident all over New York City. And what I could say to people, Delma, um, is it's not right. Where we live... And where other people live in the same city is not right. It's just not right. The conditions that we live with versus where other people are living is so profoundly different. And, you know, another thing that really kind of disturbed me, and it kind of still disturbs me, and there is, a, there is a debate within the EJ movement about this, that the struggle for civil rights and racial justice was focused on the South. And, and rightly so. But, Delma, let me ask you. You're from Flint, Michigan. You know Detroit really well. You know that metro area. Do you think that people were any less segregated, any less vilified, any less victimized, any less persecuted living in Michigan than living in Birmingham? And, yes, they were blowing up shit in Birmingham. But if you think that we were not the subject of racial violence every day in school, in healthcare, in education, in job opportunity, in banking, in whatever it was, we experienced a profound level of racial violence that permeated our lives. And I was completely emotionally 
connected to the Southern movement for racial justice. But there was also a movement for racial justice going on where I live. And that grabbed my heart as well. Um, and so what I could tell people was that the fight is not only the fight in Birmingham, the fight in Harlem, the fight in the South Bronx. And, and that experience of me going to middle school in the South Bronx had a profound impact on the trajectory of my life because I went to school in the South Bronx when they were literally burning it down to the ground. And the city of New York was complicit in that practice of letting a whole community be burned down to the ground, right? That really profoundly stuck in my head. Again, Shondine, I'm still trying to find the language to explain what it is that we are experiencing as a people and as a set of communities. But I still don't have the language, Delma. And so when I got this opportunity to work on this report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States for the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, which at the time was headquartered in, uh, on 27th Street and uh, Madison Avenue in New York, 105 Madison Avenue. And Ben Chavis was our deputy director, and he became our executive director while, while I was working at the commission. And that report was, was really important to me because for the first time it gave me a language to describe what it was I had experienced in so many phases of my life. It was environmental racism. what to call it. We just knew that we were living with it every day and we knew that it was wrong. And then I guess because my mother was a nurse, because I was always around Harlem Hospital, I had a friend that I went to college with. I went, I went to, um, to Columbia University and, and Barnett College in the middle of Harlem, though they will not tell you that they are in the middle of Harlem, the university. It is smack dab in the middle of Harlem. And this friend of mine was three classes ahead of me. He went to medical school at Columbia and then he became a, uh, a physician in the pulmonary medicine clinic in Harlem Hospital. And we kept bumping up into all these people that had asthma. At the same time that I'm doing this report at the United Church of Christ, I meet a group of people in my own community that are struggling with the building of this giant sewage treatment plant on our western edge, on the Hudson River side, across the street from where 100,000 people lived, and adjacent to where 100,000 people lived. And before the sewage treatment is fully operational and fully constructed, we're starting these public meetings, community meetings, and inviting people to come out and help us try to fight the sewage treatment plant from landing in our midst. And Shandina, it was like that. It was like that program we did where nobody wanted to talk about climate. We always wanted people to talk about the sewage treatment plant, and they always wanted to talk about asthma. And I don't care what you said. Everybody who stepped to the mic wanted to talk about asthma and the prevalence of asthma in their own household. And so it began to be clear to us that there was a crisis going on in our community, but we didn't, we didn't know what the, the impetus of it was. What is happening to us? We know something is happening, but we don't know what. And so I, you know, I reached out to this friend of mine. His name was Dr. John Ford. Um, and I said, John, you know, we are, we've bumped into something. We've stumbled into something. I don't know what's happening, but I'm hoping that you as a pulmonologist can help us wrap our arms around what is going on here. And he said, well, it's really interesting that you should reach out to me at this moment because some of us at here at Harlem Hospital and at the Columbia University School of Public Health have just um, written a, a grant proposal to the National Institutes of Environmental Health Science to do a household asthma survey across the Harlem community. And I said, well, what made you do that? And he said, because the prevalence of people being admitted to Harlem Hospital for asthma, both children and adults, is off the charts. And the rate of death from asthma that we are experiencing is off the charts. And we're trying to get our hands around what is going on here. That led to 
to linking a whole bunch of dots around air pollution and the prevalence of air pollution in our community. Turns out we had the highest rate of exposure to fine particles, PM 2.5, the slit that comes out of trucks and buses and, and heavy duty, um, heavy duty vehicles. Um, we had the highest rate and incidence of exposure to fine particle pollution of any community in the United States. In fact, any community in the Western Hemisphere, including Mexico City, which is saying a whole heck of a lot. Um, we had the highest incidence of asthma of any community in the United States. And we had the highest rate of premature death from asthma of any community in the United States. And so we had stumbled into just the, you know, one of the biggest environmental crises going on in any community in the U.S. And, but it was, it was a secret to us, but it wasn't a secret to the powers that be. And how do we know that? Because we know that every time somebody dies in the United States, that, that municipality and that county has to write on their death certificate what they died from. So the city of New York Department of Health and the state of New York Department of Health, they know that there's an asthma mortality crisis happening in our community, but nobody said anything to us. Nobody said, hey, we got to get up there. We got to figure out what's going on. We got to do some interventions. We got to no, know nobody did any of that. So we had to launch a campaign to fight for our own lives. And that led to the creation of um, West Harlem Environmental Action, which is now known as, no, it led to, yeah, West Harlem Environmental, no, we at, no, hell, what was our name? West Harlem Environmental Action was our original name. And now we are, um, we act for environmental justice. Um, and this is our 34th year of existence. If you count the years that we were organizing the community before we started a nonprofit, we're probably really up to 40 years of, of organizing and then establishing the nonprofit. And the fight still goes on. But it is, you know, it is, I guess because my mother was a nurse, when I heard that so many people were sick and dying, I knew that we had to do something. I didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't have any resource. We didn't have an organization at the time. We didn't have any grant money. We didn't have any, anything. We had a mayor of the city of New York, Ed Koch, who every time we raised the issue about air quality in our community said that we were a bunch of screaming memes. In other words, there was nothing going on there amiss. We just like to hear ourselves talk. And from then until now has been an extraordinary journey of fighting on behalf of our community and communities like us across the United States. But I think because of the way I grew up and because of the influences in my life, it just was not possible for me to see people suffering and not want to lean in and figure out what could I do to alleviate their suffering. I want to lift up for our listeners a, a pattern, a thread that I'm hearing. I, I, I wanted to be a lawyer, and then you started listening to your community. It shifted. You had an idea about what you were going to go in and write about in the toxic waste, and you heard all of the stuff about asthma. You listened and then had to shift in that moment. And even in the thing that you referenced earlier, um, for our listeners, Vernice and I and a, a couple other amazing, amazing folks were on this webinar called Restoring Balance in the Climate, Racial Justice, and Health Equity Storyline I forget what the title, something like that. It was supposed to be about environmental justice. And we kept shifting it a different way. And you leaned in and listened and followed that. And so there's something about you having to hear and be informed by those most impacted by what's happening that feels like it, it moves your trajectory a little bit. And in that, it also sounds like on those long walks with your father, you were listening to him. My question to you, if you could tell your father right now, the biggest struggle as you're trying to listen deeply and create intentional community in this sector that you fought your entire world to be in, what would you say to him is your biggest struggle? That's just the most difficult. I would say it was convincing people that they had the capacity to change the trajectory of their lives as long as we informed ourselves. So we had to teach ourselves about air quality, about environmental science, about 
how to impact public policy, how to collect data, how to empower young people in our community to be the collectors of the data, right? But we had to shift everybody's thinking that it's, it's, it's not only about what was happening to us, it was what could we do about what was happening to us. And I think that was the biggest shifting in my own mind and then shifting in my relationship to the people that I lived in community with. What are we collectively going to do about this? And I'll be damned if we did not change the trajectory of conditions in our community. So let me just jump ahead for a minute and just say this for another conversation. We did such a good job cleaning up the environmental challenges of which there were a multiplicity of things that were impacting us adversely. But we did such a good job of slaying those dragons that now Harlem is no longer a majority people of color community. You know, once it became clear that the air was not going to kill you um, and we were trying to create some balance in terms of green space and just all the, the things that affirm life for a community and bring them to our community. And we did. Once we were successful in doing that, then the white folks started coming. Yep. And so I, I guess I would also say that that's a big learning too, Sean Dean, that you can have a great vision. But if you don't connect that vision to how you keep the people who suffered when it was at its lowest to be able to benefit when the community is at its highest, right? You are making space for other people. And trust and believe that was not our intention to make space for other people. That was not our intention. But I think we didn't focus enough or I let me take my own personal responsibility. I did not focus enough on what changing the trajectory of the community and the overall environmental quality of the community and quality of life, what that would mean in terms of putting a halo around the community, right? Yeah, I, I hear you in the wanting to take personal accountability for that. But come on, like, it's it's not like it's a unique thing. And that we keep hitting a wall with that same thing with schools, we get a school, we change the inside of it, we change the pedagogy to be culturally sustaining and beautiful and amazing. And what the fuck happens? All the brown and black kids get pushed out. All yep. the white kids get in, take over. They yep. do rezoning and they do the same goddamn thing. And is it somehow our fault that we should have, like, thought seven fucking steps ahead in the context of the larger... Sh- I mean, I get yep. wanting to be accountable, but this shit's real. The second we start to gain ground, yeah, white folks move in and take it over. My long-term goal is to leverage reparations to do two things. I want to... Increase black indigenous solidarity because I don't want to talk land and not have a conversation with my indigenous brothers and sisters. That don't make sense to me. Right. Yeah. So I want to have that conversation and I want to talk reparations and I want to use I want to leverage reparations to create something new from the ground up for anybody interested. I want to put you in charge, Vernice. (laughs) Of the environmental impact, quality, sustainability, and design, right? That's your. That's your. Uh, I just crowned you that's queen. My, that's my lane. That's your lane. I want you to bring all your expertise, your vision, your passion. You talked about what's hard. I want to invite you to talk about what could be based on what you've learned right like if you didn't if there are no budgetary constraints i'm telling you vernice you got whatever blank checks you need yep build me the the dream place that vernice make it nassau the way you remember nassau back in the day right like what what does that look like so that's part one of my question the second part when vernice when you're having a bad day though Mm -hmm. and you don't feel like being bothered with none of us (laughs) <laughs> what Ooh. are we going to have to deal with? What, Lord, who who is that version of Renee showing up? So you've built the utopia for us environmentally, but you're just having a shitty day. What do you look like? What do you sound like? What do we need to know about you? So let me answer the second, the second part first. <laughs> um, because there's a lot of negative energy around that. So let me sure. put that out there. And we'll end sure. with the hopeful piece, right? I love um, it. I love it. Uh, when I'm having a bad day, 
You know, I'm very much my father's child. I have no patience for stupidity and ignorance. And I'm like, you, okay, if you are over eight years old, there are just some damn things you're supposed to know. Like when you know better, you're supposed <laughs> to do better, right? And I just have no patience for people who do stupid shit um, on a regular, right? Right? So if you come incorrect, if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling, you know, okay, then I'm gonna gonna ride with you for a bit. But if I just have had it, I haven't had enough sleep. I'm gonna come if you and if you come from me or you come from my people, you will never do it again, right? So I I'll just give you one one small example. Um, one day, my husband's grandsons were here visiting from Atlanta, and somebody rang the bell at two o'clock in the morning. We live in a very very suburban community, suburb of DC. And it was a police officer. Lights are blaring. We live on a small cul-de-sac. There's six houses on the street. And we, my husband and I and the grandkids come down. Of course, we're all dead asleep. And this black police officer says, somebody reported you earlier in the day for running your shopping cart into somebody's car. And this is what I said to the police officer. There are 55,000 people that live in this city. And you picked the one damn person who is fanatical about putting her shopping cart back <laughs> fanatical 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 okay i don't care what the weather is i don't care what's going on and i don't understand why other people can't put their shopping cart back how hard is that everybody's driving a damn car you don't want a shopping cart to roll into your car put the damn thing back right the last thing i said to the police officer was you know we had to get a referendum. We had to fight. We had to agree to raise our own property taxes to get our own damn police department. And this is what you're rolling up in my house with? You better not come here again unless I call for you. Okay? Now, that is a very empowered person. Okay? But that is also one black person talking to another black person. Right? I know this man is not going to shoot me. I know this man is not going to aggressively come for me. I don't know why the hell. He decided to roll up at my house with that conversation at 2 o'clock in the morning. But that is Vernice on a bad day. So the other part of your question is, um, you know, what, what do I hope, what could I bring? And it, and it is this. Um, we do have the capacity to create the lives that we want. We do have the capacity to create the communities that we want. But we have some work to do in terms of how we interact with each other, in terms of how we lift each other up, in terms of how we build this beloved community that, um, that Dr. King used to talk about and, and so believed in. But we got to work for that. It doesn't happen organically. You know, people say, you know, if you have the right conditions, then the right things will happen. Bullshit, right? You can have all the right conditions in the world, but you got to do the work. We all got horror, horror to share as BIPOC people in this country. But sometimes we have let that horror overtake our humanity for each other. And I just feel like the tools are here. If you, if you take a moment to see what the young people are bringing, they are bringing what we need, right? I wasn't out there in the street for Black Lives Matter. They were out there in the street. Shandine and I have some young colleagues at Metropolitan Group, young black women, very young. And they said to me early in the pandemic, Vernice, you are in that group of folk who are vulnerable. So we need you to stay put in your house and not come out. But we will be out there in the streets and you will be out there with us. But we need you to stay home. And at first I was offended. Right. And I was like, are you saying I'm too old? And they said, no, we're saying you're the leader. And when this is over, the leader has to come forward, right? And so we need you to be safe. I think with young people like that, Delma, they have the tools they need us to give to have their backs. 100%. I don't agree with everything they say. Defunding the police. We talked about this at Metropolitan Group. I wouldn't have called it defunding the police, but you would have been damn clear about what I was talking about. But I would have said it differently, Right. And I really wanted to have a conversation with the young people about how are we messaging this, right? Because what we're trying to do 
is absolutely right. But how are we saying what it is that we want to do? But that's what they wanted to talk about. So I just had to stand in the gap and have their back, right? And not have an argument with them about narrative is really important. And how you put the narrative out there can be the, you know, the, the difference in prevailing or not. That's not what folks needed to hear at that moment. They needed to hear that I had their back and I did 100%. We would love to have you back because there are some things that you are, there's, there's some pulses that I want to like go into and chase around the complexity of generation, the complexity of who gets to lead, the complexity of EJ being the cornerstone and what it is like. And, and what I worry about with youth and narrative is the, binariness of it, the polarization of it, and not inviting the nuance, the texture, the subtlety, the the complexity of it. And we would love to have you come back and start digging at, at those pieces. Like if you had the chance to pause and say, no, we need to talk about narrative differently. Why? Why not defunding the police? Why are we talking about EJ instead of natural resource? What, like, what, why are we using the language we're using? Yeah. And how can we invite a deeper conversation around generations and their roles? And I know Delma's got a whole list of things that he wants to probably unpack too um, when we come back. So I'm asking you on the part record. Two. Yes. Would you yeah. be willing to commit to part Absolutely. two with us? Absolutely. This was such a lovely, wonderful, far ranging conversation. Um, and I think we are, you know, we are in a moment where we just really need to think about where are we going and mm-hmm. how are we going to get there? Um, mm-hmm. I think we are, we've been in such a deep struggle over COVID and Delma, you, you know, you transgressed this personally, but the weight of what we are facing is so huge that it's it's difficult for people to think about how do we how do we work our way through this there will be an, an, an the other side of this but we are so caught up in this moment because we've lost so much in this moment we've lost so many so unnecessarily and race has been such a big part of this that we just need to be in conversation about so where are we going and how are we going to save ourselves Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Diving Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fahrenstein is our audio engineer. Sarah McCandless is our administrative support. Jennifer Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotional support. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.